This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The United States Supreme Court has indicated that it is leaning strongly toward ruling in favor of an abortion ban in Mississippi. Of the six conservative justices on the nation's highest court, three have been appointed by former President Donald Trump tipping the balance against reproductive justice. In allowing the Mississippi ban to stand, which the majority seems inclined to do, justices will necessarily undermine the constitutional right to an abortion. This, even as a new morning consult political poll, shows that a majority of Americans support a right to an abortion. Troublingly, that same poll found that few Americans have heard of the serious threat to the Roe v. Wade precedent. My guest is Amy Littlefield. She is the nation's abortion access correspondent and a journalist who focuses on reproductive rights, healthcare, and religion. Her latest articles include a story for the New York Times Sunday Review titled What Went Wrong? How the Abortion Rights Movement Failed to Stop the Erosion of Roe versus Wade. And her latest for the nation titled Thinking Beyond Roe. Welcome to the program, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. So before the uh, hearing on the Mississippi case, there was the ruling or I suppose a lack of a real ruling on the Texas mm -hmm. case. Um, just to get our audience up to speed, can you give us a quick backdrop for what has led up to the hearing on the Mississippi ban? Right, absolutely. I mean, I think it's easy to lose sight with all eyes on the Supreme Court of the fact that in the state of Texas, since September 1st, you know, the the people of Texas have been living under a near total abortion ban. Um, this is a law that was passed to ban abortion after fetal cardiac activity can be detected, which happens around two weeks after a miscarriage. Um, because of the way that it was written, it outsources enforcement to, you know, what what has been described as private bounty hunters, you know, everyday citizens who can um, sue anybody who aids or abets anyone in, in seeking an abortion outside of the law. Um, and that meant that sort of gave courts cover to uphold the law and let it go into effect. So, you know, the Supreme Court has really not acted on that um, case yet to say whether they're going to let the Texas law stay in effect or not. And that's left people in the state of Texas under this sort of marathon emergency crisis that they're facing where people are having to travel hundreds of miles to travel sometimes all the way across the country as far away as California or Massachusetts. And of course, we just don't know how many people in the state of Texas are unable to access abortion care um, under this near total ban. So that's sort of the backdrop. And then um, last week, we heard arguments in the Mississippi case, which is concerning a 15-week ban. The Mississippi case was sort of part of this more long-standing incremental strategy by the Christian right to chip away at abortion access over time, piece by piece. Um, and this effort was really driven by a Christian right um, legal group called the Alliance Defending Freedom, um, that sought this 15-week ban in Mississippi um, as part of that strategy to overturn Roe v. Wade piecemeal. Um, and now, of course, with three Trump justices on the Supreme Court, you know, they don't have to wait as long as they may have expected to um, reclaim all the ground that they want and, and overturn Roe v. Wade. So the strategy of the right 
has been quite successful. They seemed to first uh, pursue a very aggressive state-level uh, strategy to challenge Roe versus Wade, right, and to sort of bring it up at the to to force it to be brought up and challenged to the Supreme Court, while at the same time pushing for Supreme Court justices to mm -hmm. be, you know, these conservative anti-choice figures. They had their wildest dreams fulfilled during the Trump presidency where they didn't get one, not two, but three Supreme Court right. justices from the, you know, the list of, of people that they have vetted. Um, among them, of course, Kavanaugh said, Brett Kavanaugh said that he considered Roe versus Wade precedent. But he seems to now, at least as per the Mississippi hearing, be tilting in a different direction. Right. I mean, we saw Kavanaugh during the hearings, you know, listing off all of the precedents that the Supreme Court has overturned before and making it seem like he really thought it would be a great idea to do that again. I mean, I think we should take a step back and remember that President Trump, you know, when he was in office, said that what he wanted to do was appoint Supreme Court justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade. That was the priority. It was the priority of the Christian right groups that supported his presidency, you know, and um, and that's what he did, you know, and and the Federalist Society and other, you know, right wing organization has played a huge role here in helping um, Republicans and conservatives really claim a lot of seats on the federal courts, not just the Supreme Court. Um, and I think these justices were, you know, carefully selected for their stance in opposition to abortion. And so we're seeing the fruits of that, you know, kind of coming up now um, for the Christian right. I mean, again, they had this strategy over time to chip away at abortion piece by piece through state legislation. And what happened is that access really eroded, you know, first for low income people, people of color in states like Texas, you know, over the course of many years, access was eliminated for those people first. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, access being challenged across the board, you know, for anyone who doesn't have the money to, you know, get on a plane and fly to the nearest place where abortion might be available. You know, that's the situation that we could be facing um, if Roe v. Wade falls. About half the country, um, half of states would, would be very likely to make abortion illegal. And I want to get to what you detailed in your New York Times Sunday review piece. Uh, but before that, do you get the sense that the conservative justices, knowing that the constitutional right to an abortion is popular, or at least a majority supports it, are trying to thread the needle on Roe versus Wade, that they're not explicitly you know, wanting to come out and say they're overturning that precedent, but they're sort of letting things stand, you know, hoping for rulings that effectively overturn it without explicitly doing so? Yes, I think a lot of people expected that the Supreme Court would never, you know, challenge such a popular right or, you know, reverse 50 years of precedent, you know, even though there were many indicators that this is exactly the background of these justices, this is what they wanted to do. I think there was a lot of suspicion that they would sort of try to look reasonable. Um, the Texas law sort of sets them up for that, right? Because if they ultimately end up striking down a law that, you know, appoints your neighbor to be a bounty hunter, um, in the event that you help someone get an abortion, but they allow the Mississippi law to stand and effectively, you know, gut or overturn Roe v. Wade, then they maybe they're going to look reasonable 
Whereas, you know, really what Mississippi has asked the court to do is is overturn Roe v. Wade. And that would have sounded potentially unthinkable, you know, prior to the Trump administration. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of legal experts were surprised by how extreme the justices were sounding last week during the arguments and how willing they seemed to sort of consider um, overturning Roe outright. Um, you know, for example, when Justice Amy Coney Barrett suggested that it's not really a big deal to have to carry a pregnancy to term um, because you could just drop the baby off, you know, at the nearest safe haven um, uh, under safe haven laws wow. and, and, and put the child up for adoption. I mean, that's sort of not what... a big deal to have a baby. Right, right. I mean, in a country with like the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world, right? Not a big deal because you can just carry the pregnancy to term and then um, put the baby up for adoption. I mean, these were the and this is a woman who has children, and for yeah. anybody who's had children, seven children, five of which she's given birth to. Yeah, mm. yeah. So I mean, that's the thing is she's sort of the dream come true, right? For the Christian right, you have a woman with many children of her own sitting on the Supreme Court who's potentially going to be the one who you know overturns Roe v. Wade. You also, among the things that you've written for The Nation magazine on abortion, um, took a deep dive into the situation in Mississippi and the what you call Christian legal army behind mm -hmm. the Mississippi ban, which uh, it seems like it's sort of a, been a model for other states as well. Who in Mississippi has been pushing for the ban that is now likely to overturn Roe v. Wade at the federal level? Right. You know, I think there's this, all eyes are on Mississippi right now and on the last abortion clinic in Mississippi. Um, and it's true that Mississippi is, you know, the one, the state that's defending this law, but the the law didn't start in Mississippi, right? It was actually the, the legal architects behind this 15-week ban where the Alliance Defending Freedom, they wrote this as a model bill. And I went back and listened to, you know, audio from 2018, where their attorney was at a, a, an anti-abortion conference talking about how they were going to use this 15-week model bill that had just been introduced, the first one in Mississippi, and they were going to go all the way up to the Supreme Court and they were going to use this as part of their incremental effort to overturn Roe v. Wade. And once they got the 15-week ban, they'd go for a total ban, you know, except to save the life of the pregnant person. So, you know, that was their long game. That was their plan. Um, of course, you know, that was in 2018 and a few things have changed since then in terms of the makeup of the Supreme Court, right? So they were able to sort of accelerate those plans. Um, but, you know, I thought it was important in this piece to really draw the connection and to point out the fact that Alliance Defending Freedom, which was founded as sort of the Christian rights answer to the American Civil Liberties Union, it's this sort of um, broad umbrella group that that encompasses a lot of the Christian right legal agenda. They're also the force that's behind the anti-transgender bills that we're seeing in state legislatures, including in Texas and Mississippi, that are cropping up all across the country. Bills to prevent transgender students from playing on the sports team that matches their gender identity or from using the bathroom that corresponds to their gender identity. Um, this is literally the same organization that's driving these, you know, anti-abortion and anti-transgender attacks. And one of the things I wanted to do in, in this piece is point that out, um, how this is all part of a sort of concerted um, agenda. And, you know, I spoke with journalist Amara Jones of Translash, who said this is really the, the Christian right sort of considers itself to have won already on the issue of Roe. And they're sort of pivoting to another front in the, um, you know, 
quote unquote gender wars or whatever you want to call it, which is, you know, riling their base up around the issue of trans rights instead. Now, let's talk about how this was allowed to happen, if you will, in the Mm. uh, Sunday review of the New York Times. You had an extensive piece about the ways in which our big national high profile abortion rights organizations failed, Um, you know, again, abortion and the right to an abortion, a majority of the uh, American population supports it. Uh, Planned Parenthood has a formidable force, or at least that's the impression one gets. So Mm -hmm. what happened? Can you detail for me how it was that these organizations like NARAL, Pro-Choice America and Planned Parenthood ended up putting most of their resources into a national fight when the conservative anti-choice movement was putting all their resources into the state level fights. Right, right. And, you know, as a caveat, you know, I want to say there's a lot of explanations and a lot of factors that went into, you know, where we are today. But what I, I really wanted to do with this Times piece is understand how the movement is being forced to reckon with its own mistakes. And where, you know, some of the leading activists and experts in the abortion rights movement are right now in terms of thinking about how we arrived at this moment, which really is a historic low in many ways, you know, with the, you know, very real possibility that Roe is going to fall in the coming months. Um, And so, you know, what I wanted to do is look back at the history um, and take a look at some of the key moments when I think um, there were opportunities that were, you know, that that you know experts and activists told me opportunities that were missed that you know become painfully clear in retrospect um one really significant moment is that you know three years after roe v wade we saw this introduction of uh, the hyde amendment a measure that banned federal funding of abortion um and that meant that it was off limits to people who were on medicaid um in many cases unless states decided to issue their own funding for that and in subsequent years we saw um supreme court decisions upholding you know restrictions on on public funding of abortion um because there was not a fight that was as robust as it could have been right off the bat to push back against the hyde amendment that ban on federal funding really became a normalized part of the budget process year after year after year Um, And the issue of public funding became sort of a third rail in abortion politics, which reproductive justice groups did a lot of hard work over years to sort of change that. Um, And, you know, notably to get, you know, President Biden to shift his stance on that. He was a defender of the Hyde Amendment, as were a lot of Democrats for a long time. So it was only when reproductive justice groups forced a national reckoning over the fact that this is really a racial justice issue. This is a a situation where you're forcing, you know, you're, you're depriving women of color, people on Medicaid, poor people of a right that, you know, people with private insurance or people with money and means, you know, can access. Um, that sort of framing, which has really taken center stage in, in recent years because of the reproductive justice and Black Lives Matter movements, you know, there's there's been a real shift in that. But um, one of the things that I heard when I was talking to people is sort of the missed opportunity that that framing, that pushback around, you know, fighting for sort of the people who lost their rights first um, 
how that was sort of a missed opportunity to to draw a line in the sand, um, starting you know with the Hyde Amendment in 1976. Now, I do want to say there were efforts to fight back against that. Um, Faye Waddleton, who was the first Black woman to lead Planned Parenthood in 1978, really tried to take a stand over the issue of Medicaid funding, and she got a lot of pushback from within the ranks of her own organization's affiliates. So. Um, that was one of the sort of moments that I think um, people brought up in terms of, you know, missteps or, or ways that the movement sort of ceded the rights of the most vulnerable over time. And so there's this intersection between reproductive justice and racial justice, right? Exactly, exactly. Which I think, you know, quite frankly, over, you know, a lot of decades, the mainstream pro-choice movement was often led by white women who were not thinking intersectionally, we're not always thinking about racial justice, we're not thinking primarily about issues like public funding. And I think when the movement said, okay, look, Roe v. Wade is there and abortion is legal, that seeded a lot of ground in terms of what it meant to actually make access real for people who didn't have public funding or who were having to deal with incremental restrictions that were coming out of the states. Um, and so, you know, another issue is that there wasn't the level of investment in state level battles to push back against that legislation by some of these national organizations over time. Um, and if there had been more of an investment, we might have seen, you know, better resourcing for um, reproductive justice groups in states like Texas to push back against um, bills like Senate Bill 8 or to, you know, push back against um, to, you know, sort of invest more in state level elections and change the makeup of their legislatures over time. So let's talk about moving beyond Roe versus Wade. It seems as though this chapter um, of a national fight is slowly closing, but that doesn't, of course, mean it's the end of abortion rights. What are some mm -hmm. of the ways in which grassroots organizations, where there's always been energy in defending abortion rights, mm -hmm. what are some of the ways in which they are either pivoting or re-energizing to, you know, to, to kind of redo or maybe um, fill the gap that the national organizations have left? Reproductive justice groups have always understood that they couldn't rely on the Supreme Court or on Congress, right? And I think certainly when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, you know, that was a moment where the movement really understood it was going to have to um, regroup and chart its own path forward. And I think, um, at least in terms of the grassroots organizations that are, are directly involved in, in providing care and getting people to care, um, so I think there's a couple of things that I saw, you know, I was outside the Supreme Court um, last week when they um, were hearing arguments inside um, and outside I saw, you know, activists having this very energetic six hour long rally. Um, and I think there are a couple of things that it seems like the abortion rights movement is really channeling its energy towards. One of them is going to be working out the logistics of getting people the care that they need. Um, so if abortion is going to become illegal, potentially in about half of states, then I think there's a question about moving people to those states where it's legal, building up access in um, states where it's legal, investing in, in telemedicine. Um, and then also figuring out ways to get medication abortion, so pills that can be used to end a pregnancy, 
um, into the hands of people who might not be able to travel out of states where it's illegal. And that sort of brings up a legal gray zone and the potential for criminalization. So there's legal groups involved in that. There's, you know, advocacy groups involved in, in thinking through those solutions. And I think another part of what I saw, you know, there the, the rally um, last week was held under the banner of the slogan, liberate abortion. And that to me was sort of evidence of, okay, we're not saying to the Supreme Court, please, 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 you know, okay, uphold the 15 week ban, but you know, don't overturn Roe v. Wade. Instead, there seems to be this sort of shift towards a message of culture change, a message of destigmatizing abortion and, you know, changing hearts and minds and really building the mass movement that's gonna be needed to, you know, reclaim the ground that's been lost over time. I'm so uh, glad you brought up this issue of a cultural shift because that seems to be, since the Roe v. Wade decision, a front that we haven't moved as far on up until maybe a few years ago when there's been starting, when where there started to be this destigmatization of abortion rights, where you know people who've had abortions right. are starting to embrace that and announce it and express mm -hmm. that there's nothing wrong with it. For years, we've had right, Hollywood tropes of you know, people who've gotten pregnant and wrestled with the idea of an abortion, mm -hmm. mo most of the time ultimately deciding not to have an abortion or if they did, being so torn up about it. And we've right. had this shame right, around abortion rights. Mm -hmm. and, and that seems to have been a big missing piece in the national discourse on it. There hasn't been much national discourse beyond, yes, we agree women should have abortions. Uh, or should be able to have abortions if they want to. It's always been this choice thing rather than uh, a celebration of, 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 of people being free to do what they want to do with their bodies, right? Right, right. And I think the abortion storytelling movement, you know, groups like We Testify are really moving the bar on that. Um, and they have this slogan, everyone loves someone who's had an abortion or everyone loves someone who's had abortions. And they're really, you know, trying to push, like Renee Bracey Sherman, the head of that group said at the end of, of the rally, if you've had an abortion and you haven't told people you love, you know, tell them. Because I think that's where this sort of steady incremental change of, of you know, moving people to participate, you know, maybe people who already are in favor of abortion rights, but don't realize they have this personal connection to it, you know, bringing those people into the fight and sort of drawing on the untapped political potential of the one in four people, you know, who've had abortions, um, or one in four women and, and an untold number of trans and non-binary folks who've had abortions, you know, bringing those people and, and anyone who loves them <laughs> into the movement. Um, that really seems to be the target and, and sort of building that long game over time to, to push back against this um, very real threat that's on the horizon. Is there a move or a push or desire to try to legislate abortion rights? I mean, we've relied on just going back to the issue of how, yes, grassroots groups are not waiting on Congress to do the right thing because, well, they'd be waiting forever, as we find out on so many other fronts. But... Congress and Democrats who claim they're pro-choice and a handful of Republicans have relied far too much on the Supreme Court precedent of Roe v. Wade, right? And, and have failed to legislate the right to an abortion. Now we're seeing Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren making the case for abolishing the filibuster in, uh, you know, because abortion rights are at stake. Is that, as far as you can tell, a potential for uh, progress? 
I mean, I think there's certainly organizing going on to pressure Democrats in Congress to act. There are, you know, measures like the Women's Health Protection Act, and there's also the EACH Act, which would repeal the Hyde Amendment. You know, those measures, there's been momentum from from progressive Democrats um, and for some time. But I think um, a lot of the most rapidly moving um, and energetic organizing going on to preserve and even expand abortion rights is happening at the state and even the city level. Um, So in recent years, we've seen cities like New York City, Austin, Texas, Portland, you know, authorizing funding to help people to be able to access abortion at the city level. We've seen efforts by states like my home state of Massachusetts became the first to repeal a a parental consent law so that minors would have easier access to abortion. So I think we're seeing, you know, efforts to shore up abortion access um, and reproductive health care in states and counties and cities where that's possible. Um, And a lot of that is happening, you know, in the same way that that's what when when the anti-abortion movement lost to the Supreme Court, they really, you know, put all of their investment into or a lot of their investment into the state and and city fight. And we're seeing that happening on the other side now. So for those people who are watching and listening to this conversation, who are worried about the threat to abortion rights, and I mentioned there was a poll done where a lot of Americans simply have no idea that the Mm -hmm. right to an abortion is so deeply threatened. For those folks who are realizing that now, um, would you suggest, based on the journalism you've done, that if they want to, say, give money to abortion uh, rights groups, to pro-choice groups, that they might better be better off giving it to their local organization that may not necessarily be affiliated directly, at least, with uh, Planned Parenthood or narrow pro-choice? Not that those organizations don't deserve the money necessarily, but if a lot of work is being, work is being done at the grassroots level, is it worth finding the local groups in one's neighborhood and one city and supporting them? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly if folks are looking for ways to get involved, it's important to look at what's going on in your own city council, your own state legislature, and understand the groups that are are doing that work on the ground. Um, And yeah, one of the things that I heard, you know, I interviewed a lot of state um, organizations, a lot of people who are involved in reproductive justice work in Texas, and they all said, you know, they're doing work they're really underfunded, you know, they're doing things like helping minors who have to go petition a judge for permission to get an abortion if they don't have a supportive parent, you know, they're doing um, work like that, which is very intense and very emotionally draining, often on a a shoestring budget. And so um, I think, yeah, check out the organizations that are, are doing that work in your community. Um, I think a lot of times the national groups like Planned Parenthood have absorbed a lot of the resources and um, political capital and also the responsibility, right? I mean, they have a lot on their plate in terms of their political work and providing, you know, basic health care in a lot of places. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think one trend that emerged in my reporting is really that the state and local organizations have been comparatively um, underfunded over time um, and, um, you know, haven't been given necessarily the resources that they've needed in order to wage these very intense um, battles in state legislatures. Amy, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We'll post links to your articles in The Nation as well as the New York Times Sunday Review. Thanks so much. 
Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. My guest has been Amy Littlefield. She is the nation's abortion access correspondent and a journalist who focuses on reproductive rights, healthcare, and religion. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.